0: Well, first of all, I want to welcome, let's do the sound effects, everybody. If you're watching this in Patreon and you're here with us, put your comments and questions and we'll get to it. This is the first time I'm meeting Gunner, and we got Gunnar Nelson right here in the audience. How about that? Welcome, Gunnar. The show. <laughs> this is the first time you and I are talking and we're rambling a little bit and we talk about a lot of great stuff and cool. thank you for being here, first of all. Well,
1: hey, thanks for having me. And
0: really. we, we're talking mutual friends and we have a couple and make is courtesy of mark slaughter and mark does the theme music for our show and um you know what we need a good intro so before we get started gonna hit our intro check it out okay music by mark slaughter hear it? how about that that's be love boat it
1: is. Good but, for but, Mark. But, but
0: Mark Slaughter is one
1: of the greatest voices in rock and roll. I'll tell you, he's the best guy. <laughs> Mark Mark and I came up with a concept for a thing I do called Scrap Metal. Yeah. Yeah, and I had a great time with Scrap Metal. All the lead singers from the biggest 80s hair bands in one band. And, uh, for example, the last we did was uh, Mark, me and Matt, Kip Winger, Lita Ford, and Dee Snider. Wow. And of this particular band, but I found myself having to wait through a lot of the album cuts to get to the ones I really wanted. And I just said to Mark, hey, wouldn't it be really cool to put together a live show that had nothing but the hits that everybody kn- that everybody knows, sung by the original singers. And he said, well, a couple of people have tried to do that. I said, I'm not talking about, with all respect, the the multitude of bands that are out there that have like the third bass player from the second incarnation of this and that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the front people who, who actually sang all those songs and were icons of MTV. And he said, oh, it'll never happen because of all the managers and egos and schedules and stuff. I said, you know what? I think it could work if we all approach it like friends. Rather than going through agents and managers and stuff, we text each other like we normally do and say, hey, what are you doing on this Saturday? You know, you want to play with with the fellas. And it grew from there and it's turned into this really cool thing. You know, it's just a bunch of great friends going out there and kind of reconnecting with why they started in music in the first place. You know how it is when you go out on a tour, if you're not careful, all those songs that you play on your tour, your groove can become a rut really quickly. You know, if you have got a long career, I mean, there's some bands out there that, man, they haven't changed their set list in 30 years. It's exactly the same every show. Yeah. Yeah. Is exactly the same. And that to me, that's creative death to me. I can't do that. That's why I don't – I respect everyone who's got a day job or they're a cubicle person or whatever. I don't have that kind of discipline. I'm very ADD when it comes to that. So I, I couldn't do that. So yeah. Strap Metal's giving me kind of like the opportunity to – I mean I have to learn everyone's material that's coming in, all these cast members. It, it, it's a revolving door.
0: That's the challenge so, right there.
1: Yes, yeah, so, which is cool, but it's really nice because all of a sudden – I'm not Gunner from Nelson going out and doing a Nelson concert. I get to be in Slaughter for the night and in Twisted Sister and in Lita Ford and in Winger. And it's cool because I have yeah. to really woodshed and learn all that stuff. And it's exciting. It's kind of one of those things where it's a lot of work to put one of the shows together. But as soon as it's done, we all turn to each other and go, God, when, we, when can we do another one? That was great.
0: You know, I was funny. I was talking to Mark yesterday on the telephone, and he was t- talking about scrap metal. Because I told him you're coming on, and yeah. he was saying it's so weird because there he gets to be a guitar player, not yeah, center, which which is what he really was. Not he
1: a- really was. He was a guitar teacher out of Vegas, and yeah, you know, look, I have always been friendship aside. If if Mark and I, even if Mark and I weren't uh, serious buddies, I, I've always been a giant Slaughter fan, and uh, more importantly, a giant Mark Slaughter fan um you know we we actually uh shared a drummer at one point bobby rock of course was in the vinnie vincent invasion yeah and then he joined nelson and uh and and mark was one of the guys i called about bobby and stuff when we were thinking about putting a band together and it was like one of those things we'd always the bands would run into each other at the american music awards and the functions and stuff and those guys had started out years before we did and they were releasing records four or five years before nelson actually got started it wasn't our fault that we we had John Colladner as our a guy and he was doing that, that whole phase when he was working with Aerosmith where he was sending Aerosmith back into the studio to record entire records all over again. And he held on to that first Nelson record for like three years longer than he needed to. I, I wish we had released that first After the Rain record, uh, you know, gosh, in 88 or 89 yeah. and, instead of 1991 It would have made a big difference for us, but everything happens for a reason. But uh, long story short, man, Mark's vocal on the VVI song Love Kills which is uh, in the soundtrack for Nightmare on Elm Street if you're out there and you're watching this and you haven't checked it out you have got to hear Mark's vocal on that it is it's staggering i yeah. mean Robert Plant would be jealous it's unbelievable it, and uh, one of the greatest vocalists i've ever heard
0: he really has a great voice and guitar player the guy's yeah. all, just now even the theme song he did that all like i want more 70s love boat I'm tr- i want retro and Yeah, that's what we grew up with and he just came up with it he's just so talented well he's
1: so talented he man he grabbed a bass i was uh doing a a recording a a song for my new project it's the project's called firstborn sons and and i was working on a song called cowboy up and mark was there and man he is equally as talented on bass as he is on guitar too the guys you know he makes me want to quit what can i say next next subject no
0: but he is he's 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 you know it's funny because we talk about that era when you talk about Nelson. I remember when you guys came out because I was an Aaron boy. My world's Circus Magazine, and oh, cool. I got the I got the gig in 1987, and I get right. the tickets and all the. I remember when you guys came out, and it's crazy. You guys, great songs, great melodies, great hooks, and you put a lot of heart and soul when nobody was giving you a chance because people think the past history from. Ozzy and Harriet, your dad, Rick.
1: Oh, they think they think trust fund kids, man. Their whole thing is like, in in rock and roll, especially well in America in general, people want to want to believe in that whole rags to riches thing, which is great, you know. Tupelo, Mississippi, shotgun shack becomes Elvis. They love that story, and it's a fantastic story, and and, yeah. and it is. But you know, no one was ever going to believe Matthew and I were a couple of dumpster diving street kids. We just weren't raised that way, you know. But what they don't know, like like when the first Nelson record came out. You know, Matthew and I never really intended to be like any of the Sunset Strip bands because we started a lot earlier. Matthew and I started playing when we were six years old and we started playing the L.A. club scene professionally from the time we were 12. There's actually a law in in Los Angeles now that underage performers can go in and perform in a club that serves liquor as long as they're escorted out by their guardian immediately after the show. That's our law. We actually put that on the book. So we actually cut our teeth a full decade before the whole Sunset Strip scene even happened. So at 12, Matthew and I were sharing the stage with like the police and the Knack and the Go-Go's and all the bands in LA that had the skinny ties and the the before their name. That's what Matt and I grew up in. And you know, the funny thing is they think that a lot of the metal guys were so tough and stuff. Bunch of wusses, man. If you got into a street fight back in that day, it was an exception. But man, during the day when Matt and I were playing clubs. All those like shiny, happy, skinny tie band. Those were all the guys that were on heroin. Those were all the people that would sabotage your gear. They would, they'd freaking knife you if you went five minutes over on your set time. That's what Matt and I grew up in. And it's cool because it really toughened us up for later on. You know, I I understand we're a lot and we make a lot of and especially back then made a lot of people uncomfortable. Uh, You had that you know, androgynous image, which I get it was a lot. We kind of looked like Millie Vanilla, but that whole look was really our doing. The record company didn't, it did not do that. That was our thing. Our whole thing was like, you're flipping through MTV and you've got a second, maybe a second and a half to capture people's attention. So that was just basically peacocking to get people to park on MTV just long enough to dig the music. Mm-hmm. And that was our call. And all of our contemporaries at that time, they were doing the black and white. Spill beer on your girlfriend. Warehouse videos. That's what everybody else was doing. We had Technicolor videos with snow falling up and birds flying backwards for crying out loud. We wore freaking chaps. You know, it was a lot to make. It was a lot to make fun of. I get it. But at the core of it was two brothers around two acoustic guitars, writing their own songs, recording their own music in the studio. We never got any credit for that. And we got turned down by every single label in both New York and Los Angeles twice. It's so crazy. Before we actually got signed to Geffen. And Jack Ponty was in the middle of that whole thing. You know, he was part of that shopping to New York thing. Uh, and, and actually, I just... Came from the mastering studio. I, I know I'm talking a lot and I'm all go. Over no, room. we're here, but uh, we just actually left the mastering studio in East Nashville. We, we got to master the Nelson greatest hits and near misses record um, that we're doing with Universal uh, 17 songs. And it's the first time in our career where we could do a greatest hits record that spans the entire career. Our individual, our, our uh, independent label, our own label, Stone Canyon Records, did a deal with Universal. And our whole catalog is now there. So we got to pick the best from, from the entire career. And, uh, it, it was really kind of cool to, uh, proof all of the liner notes that came through my email while I was sitting there in the mastering studio with legendary Ted Jensen, who has at Sterling sound mastered my favorite records when I was growing up. I mean, this guy has done, if you love it, I guarantee you, Ted mastered yeah. it. And, uh, I got to read all the liner notes and Jack, my friend Jack Ponte was mentioned in there too, about how we were sitting there on the porch of the Ponte house, once upon a time, it was probably like 1987, 1988, in, in and around there. Um, our dad had died on New Year's Eve, 1986. So we're still kind of like recovering and finding ourselves and writing songs. And, and we had met Jack through a mutual friend. And, um, and you know, he's a, a really incredibly passionate, colorful character, let's say. Yeah. Very opinionated. And we had just gone to New York City and gotten thoroughly rejected by Derek Shulman, who at the time was uh John Bon Jovi's A&R guy at Mercury. And you know, John was on the slippery thing and and at the height of his career. And and uh and Derek, I think had also done night songs for Cinderella, and you know, he was the top record company guy in the world at the time, and he took great relish at completely shooting me and Matt down when we played him our demo. And, you know, it was kind of one of those don't quit your day job kids kind of thing. And uh, I was sitting there and I was on Jack's porch and we were kind of going, wow, we've done the best we can and and I can't believe we got shot down. And this that's like, you know, the 30th A&R guy on both coasts that said no. And and I said, well, we just got to suck it up and keep writing and and go back out there. And, and uh, you know, we've learned a lot and stuff and it just puts some fire my belly and I want to go take another swing at it. And Jack off the cuff said, you know what? You and your brother can make more out of nothing than anybody I've ever met. And I went, thank you. And he said, I I didn't mean that as a compliment. And I said, I understand you didn't, but I promise you, thank you. And I agree. And it's been that attitude throughout our entire life from any of the haters or the doubters or whatever that, that would want to dismiss us as trust fund kids and we don't need the break and all that kind of stuff. It made us work harder. It made us write better. It made us do the shows when we were sicker. It made us record later in the night and give a shit more. And I think that's what it's all about, man. It's like, you've got to really be passionate about what it is you do and stick with it no matter what. And all of those little moments that I remember being on the Jack Ponte family porch there in Tom's River, and that particular moment, I was—I wrote that down in the liner notes for this freaking greatest hits record. That's kind of kind of neat. I'm just a kid from Burbank who yeah. wanted to make music, you know? And, uh, and I was kind of reading back my words and, and kind of reliving the moment. And all of, all of a sudden it hit me that that same demo tape that got absolutely fabulously canned in person by the top A&R guy in the world at the time had love and affection after the rain more than ever. Only time will tell. They were the same demos that got assigned a year later to John Kallodner at Geffen and the rest is history. Wild. So everyone's going to have an opinion, man. Everyone's going to have an opinion. And sometimes you got to be able to take the, the pony from the room full of crap and make something out of it. And you've got to have that certain, you've got to have, that belief. If you know it's good, and you know it's the best you can possibly do, then keep on swinging, man. And then it only takes one yes. It really does. It takes one yes. We heard a thousand no's, but at uh, the right times in our life, we heard the, that one yes.
0: Let me ask you, because you guys, you just named uh, hit songs. Hit songs. And just to write one hit song, it's the hardest thing to do. righty. And do you, do you feel like these people, when you were shopping it, they just had a hard-on, like they wouldn't give you a chance. You know what? Yeah, pretty boy. The family. I don't want to get them into. I don't want to deal with that.
1: Well, it's it's that whole it's that whole guilty until proven innocent thing. Yeah, you know, and and honestly, I still get that from time to time. It's it's remarkable. Like, look, I was raised with Beatles. Okay, I mean these these were people that were over at my house all the time. I mean, Uncle George was my next door neighbor. George Harrison? It's great. You know, I mean, my the crazy haired guy that wouldn't leave the house was Bob Dylan. That's who I grew up with, right? And what I learned was the most competent people were the coolest. They're the most down to earth. Yeah. The ones that should be total dicks are the ones that are the coolest people. I mean, Paul McCartney could not be nicer. you right. And then throughout my career, I've also met and surprisingly enough, because, you know, once you've spent enough time in the trenches doing what it is we do and you're still doing it, And you're doing it at a a top level and you're still, you're not phoning it in. You you treat every show and every record and every song like you mean it and all that. There's a certain amount of respect that you should have from your compadres that are in the trenches, whether or not they play your kind of music or not. We all know what we all go through and what we've gone through and what we've had to go through to get to this point, right? And, and, And there's a certain amount of respect that should come with that. And rarely, um, rarely I get, uh, you know, some attitude and -hmm. and all that. But, um, you know, we usually can convert somebody. All it takes is for them to play with us or to write with us and stuff. And and it's uncomfortable. It's like in our dad's case, and I'm not comparing myself to him at all because the guy was fabulously beautiful. I mean, he was freakishly good looking. Um, But that was actually a blessing and a curse in his case because – Uh, like when, when John Fogarty inducted our dad into the rock and roll hall of fame, he wrote um, and said that um, for most critics to have to admit that Ricky Nelson actually had the talent that he really did have would be like having somebody having to admit that the prom queen had a brain. It's just uncomfortable because it goes against the paradigm. You know Um, you you don't want to think that that's the case. And, You know, in our case, in Nelson's case, to us, it was always about the songs. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were doing, as I mentioned, we cut our teeth in those L.A. clubs a decade before those other guys even started playing. So what I noticed, even from a very young age, when you would go to a club, and that was the paradigm, right? You, you, uh, You put an act together, you put your band together, you play clubs, you build a following, you start creating a buzz. The record company guy at Mega Records hears about that, comes down and sees your band, signs you you make a record you make a video and you're a big star that's the the dream and that's the way it was back then you know now with social media everything's completely changed but that was the paradigm that we grew up in that was the formula right and what i realized even as a 12-year-old playing clubs with all these adults is that most bands had like one song that all the girls used to wait through the entire set to hear yeah you know even even the hardcore fans you know they, 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 you know, they knew the words to all the songs. But when that one good song started to to play, you heard those first tones of that, uh, the chips would go crazy and the place would go crazy. So registered to me and Matt, man, it's all about the songs. That's if they have, have one song. But what if you can be one of those acts like where every song is like the first Boston record? You know, that, that's what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was, you know, go back to the drawing board take less of an emphasis off of building a a club following, a live following, go back to the drawing board and relearn how to write songs at a Billboard Hot 100 top 10 level. And that takes a lot of writing and a lot of experience and a lot of time. And, you know, we just didn't really feel like we had a lot of time. You know, after our dad died, he left us four and a half million dollars in debt. And we didn't really have an option at that point. It was either sink or swim. Yeah, And, uh, you know, there was no money to go to college or do any of that stuff. Plus, I, I wasn't really framed that way. I just really wanted to be a musician. So back then it was get that elusive record deal. So when we finally got our record deal with John Kladner and Geffen, uh, we had $18 in a joint bank account, Matthew and I shared. We were crashing on friends' couches living out of the trunk of our car, you know, like like so many musicians have. Mm-hmm. But our our tale is very similar to somebody who didn't have a famous family or anything. We certainly never had a trust fund. We had our dad's debt. It took us 10 years to pay off his debt. Wow. That's and, and we're but No, but we're, we're really proud of that, you know, because everyone was saying, oh, you know, you should have the estate declare bankruptcy. And, and our thing was like, well, our dad never did it while he was alive. He felt that was dishonorable. And I know that seems to be an outdated concept, but mm-hmm. my family takes that seriously. So we spent all of our publishing money and our, our after the rain tour money paying back our father's debt. And we're really proud of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when
1: people, when people go like, Oh, trust fund kids and they don't need the break and all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, you know what? Suck it because you don't know what you're talking about. But the most important thing is look, it's no one's business. How easy or hard we had it, you know, it comes down to this man. Do we create songs that become the soundtrack to people's lives and improves the quality of their life and improves the world that we live in. And the answer to that was, thank God. Yes. And I was listening to the 17 cuts On that Greatest Hits record, the irony being one of the songs is um, a song called Won't Walk Away Mm -hmm. that we uh, we rewrote with Jack at that time. And Jack doesn't even know that a song that he worked on with us back in the day when he basically was like, you guys just need to hang it up and all that kind of stuff is on the freaking Greatest Hits record. So after this interview, I'm going to I'm going to get to actually send him a copy of it and say, thank God you were wrong. You
0: know, you know what? also, can you add on that interview? you be nice to to Stefan. He's a nice guy. Can you add in that? I I can try, but
1: Jack's not a nice dude. You know, by the way, (laughs) by the way, for, for Jack to actually, you know, to, to, to pick on you means he
0: likes you. I know he does. He loves me. And you know what? I'm, we're not straying from the interview, everybody who's watching, because we're going to edit this out for the good things, but mutual friendships here, and, and uh, we have, and and Gunner, it's funny because Jack's a hard ass, and he would say, the show's going nowhere, you don't be, and he's cursing, and I'm like, Jack, if it makes me happy, I'm not hurting anybody, I got to believe in what you're saying. You know, just now, you're talking about nobody's business, and the music, and all this, but you got two stories now. You got your music, but just the story about your family history, the ups and downs, your dad's bankruptcy how the way you guys and your family and your dad kept their chin up your dad went to work he toured you know he toured. he worked he hustled he was always hustling and you guys too um i think people watching this also who are going through hard times financially and i think right here your story can help other people maybe you know motivate them hey you know what i just watched gunner on stefan's show
1: oh well i i I should i hope so i mean i I hope so i just I, you know, the one thing that we all share is, uh, you know, especially in this world where you've got social media and quick cuts and yeah. and all of that. I, I, I love music. I genuinely love music. Yeah. I love music more than business. That's where my friend Jack Ponti and I disagree. We've always disagreed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's about the dead presidents in your wallet. I don't think that's how you measure a man. I don't think that's how you measure a life. You know, I think once you have enough and you can take care of the people that you're supposed to take care of. Then you can concentrate on, you know, doing God's work and improving lives and doing the best you can and having an adventure with it. And, man, I've been doing this a long, long time and I love music even more now than I did back then.
0: It's funny you say that, you know, because I was telling my wife, I go, I want more music in the house. When I was a kid, I always had the the turntable, the cassettes always on. And then there was a point in my life, I stopped playing music because I got, I got, I'll call it, I got jackpoted out, you know, I got burnt out and I got, I became not a fan and then picking out vinyl records and I'll show you something that made me back a fan and I play around the house that makes me feel good is stuff like this.
1: Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice record.
0: And this, I found, look how great this looks. And just the whole thing about a record. Look how handsome, first of all, your dad looks here. Okay,
1: check this out. Now, turn that record over. Now, you see that? That's for your viewers. Okay, that's the handwritten lyrics to Garden Party, our dad's song. Wow. Brother, that's hanging on my wall downstairs. Really? Oh, yeah. It's my prized possession. If my house were on fire, I'd grab my family and that lyric sheet. Wow. That is killer. Yeah. And, it's, and you can see that's, that's how the process works. It's all the words are crossed out and it's written around in the margins. There's a coffee cup, co- coffee cup stain on it. And he just in a studio one night when everybody thought that he was completely done and over and yesterday's news, he'd just gotten booed off the stage at Madison square garden by showing up at an oldies festival and playing his new music, his new country rock trip, the stone Canyon band he put together it was too much for all of those fans. He got booed off the stage by 20,000 people. And wow. then he then he went back home and, you know, the phone had stopped ringing and, and all that. And in the middle of the night, he was given that song and it totally changed his life.
0: What, what a what a song. What a great song. And look, look at the photographs of this. I mean, this makes you want to be a musician, even as you and I, if this wasn't your dad, you'd stare at this. And right away, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the bass. I'm like, yeah, oh. you know, I'm like, wow, look how cool. And you then,
1: know, and, and, and this is like it was like the Wild West musically. Think about it. Okay, our dad was the first guy to put like a Marshall Hashtag stack right right next to Buck Owens' pedal steel player. It's crazy. And you know, our dad strapped on a Les Paul and let it roast. And it's just like, man, there. You know, back in that day, there was a scene that was happening at a club called the Troubadour Club down on yeah. Santa Monica Boulevard, and it was what they called the Laurel Canyon Sound. So you had uh, Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and Linda Ronstadt and. Uh, uh, Buffalo, Springfield, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all those guys working out of that one club and, and creating a new thing. And then our, uh, our dad wanted to play the club with his new band. And uh, again, he'd been working uh, at, at Dylan's insistence to, to write his own stuff. Turned out he had a real talent at it. And he envisioned this whole thing. He traded his legendary guitar player, James Burton, for Tom Brumley on pedal steel is a legendary Buck Owens, buckaroo and created this amazing sound. And he went down to the Troubadour and he asked uh, Doug Weston, the owner, if he could actually uh, play one of the nights and Doug was horrible. He said, you know, you're not cool. You are unhip and you're one of those fifties guys. And that's not what we're about here. We, we do hip and cool and you're the antithesis of that. And, uh, and so my dad was well, cold,
0: huh? He was that cold? To that, him, cold.
1: Huh? Oh, that cold. That cold was a decided no. So my dad said, um, Well, okay, fine. Um, how much would it cost for me to rent your club for an entire week? Our dad opened the next day. And the, the, the rest is history. He actually had to four wall that club. And uh, the, after that first night, there was a line around the block for that whole week, and the Stone Canyon Band was born. But he too, had to go through a thing where he was considered a made-for-TV guy. That was really unfair. He, he was actually the one guy that smuggled rock and roll into mainstream Amer- American living rooms through the television. I mean, now everybody yeah, plays yeah. on <laughs> Yeah. You know, now everybody plays on TV. And back then, no one played on TV. First off, it was the devil's music. I mean, Ozzy and Harriet, my grandparents got hate mail like you wouldn't believe when Ricky started playing rock and roll. And that race music on Ozzy and Harriet, he got a, they got a lot of hate. What they didn't know is that Ozzy and Harriet met when Oz had a big band in the 30s. He had a number one in 1935 with his own song. And so it fell on deaf ears, fortunately. Um, they, they went against ABC, the network, and insisted our dad sang. Uh, even the record, he couldn't get a record deal. Even though he had the number one TV show in the world and no one would give him a record deal, even a singles deal, because they thought free milk and a cow. If kids could see music on, played on TV for free, they wouldn't go buy the single. You know, our, our Grandpa Ozzy was a genius. He went to Rutgers and was way ahead of his time, got a law degree no one knew about on stuff. He was really smart. So he, uh, he actually thought they were wrong. He went and he got a singles deal for our dad on a jazz label called Verve, one single. And so yeah. they put out that first, uh, that first song, I'm Walking. And he had it in the stores the first time our dad actually went on the show and, and played I'm Walking, the first song he sang. And uh, if you see those old episodes, you'll, you'll be able to tell our dad was actually singing it live. The whole band was playing it and singing it live. Wow, and uh, wow. and it sold a million copies, a million singles that first week, and a career was born, and a new paradigm was shifted. Then it all became about marketing music on television, and I mean that was a really big first. And if our dad had stopped at just that, that would have been amazing. He sold half a billion singles over wow. that run, and uh, and you're right. I mean he was, uh, you know, he did Rio Bravo that movie with John Wayne, um, and it was a great western, iconic thing and he'd made the transition from television to film
0: i mean just what you just said a movie with john wayne
1: That's oh a, yeah it's a oh no no i, I got crazy. the best story in the world check this out i, I want you to, to cast your mind here okay you're ricky nelson and you look like that guy in the cover that you just showed you're celebrating your 18th birthday on the set of the john wayne western that you're making okay your de- your co-stars are obviously john wayne dean martin and walter brennan and your real life date for your birthday celebration on the set in old tucson was angie dickinson crazy where do you go from there <laughs> i mean seriously you wind up having the number one uh, song television show and movie in the same week it's never been done before or since and you're experiencing that how awesome is that i mean i just think that's wonderful but
0: uh Angie Dickinson, yeah. you're making this movie, these this at sh- beautiful, beautiful lady. I mean, come on, doesn't get oh, bigger stunning. than that.
1: Man, she is still a stone cold yes. box. I saw her at an autograph signing event like three years ago, and she still smolders and is the sweetest woman, and uh, you know, she uh it was pretty cool. I, I, I was actually at the American Music Awards. It was 1986. Matthew and I had sung a tribute for our father who had just passed the month before. We were a couple of scared kids. Dick Clark came to us and asked us if we would sing. So they were going to do a tribute to our dad that yeah. year. And, and we agreed. And, and we were, again, just turned 18. Uh, just kids. And, um, and we did it and did the best we could. And, uh, and we were at the after party. And we were, Matt and in, the, we were in the back of the room, a couple of dumb kids, you know, terrified holding up the back wall in this room where everybody was shoulder to shoulder. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a, in a room where something's going down oh, yeah. and, and in the room, the, the chemistry in the room changes, it feels electric. And it happened in this room that was full to the brim. Everyone started to get quiet. And then the room started parting like the red sea from the door in the back of the room to make way for this incredible smoking hot woman who had a young stud on each arm. She looked like Jessica Rabbit. She walked down this aisle people were making for her. And she was walking with a purpose. And about halfway across the room, I realized she was looking in our direction, which was cool. And then about 20 feet away, she was looking at me, which was awesome. And I realized it was Angie Dickinson. Wow. And she walked straight up to me. And now you could hear a pin drop. All eyes were on us. The room was dead quiet. And she gave me the elevator eyes. And she leaned in and she whispered, your daddy was a hell of a man and turned around and walked away.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow! I was,
1: go pop, you know? Wow. But, but he actually was somebody who yeah. could have gone arguably down the path that was easier, you know, Delhi Trey's personal assistance and schedules of being a fine film actor, all right? But he decided that, you know, uh, for anybody who had any doubt, Ricky Nelson was not... Uh, an actor who happened to sing music well. He was a rocker that happened to start out on TV and film because he was touring up to 300 days a year up until the day he died. And he literally lived and died for rock and roll. He died on his way to a show. I mean, this guy lived it.
0: He was going to the show. Yeah,
1: he was going to play on New Year's Eve. So, I mean, this is a guy who deserves so much more respect. Totally. Totally then he got you know and and did so much but it's it's easier for a lot of critics to let's say he got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame not the first year but the second year and he was alive that first year and he got to see all of his friends inducted that first year and that was kind of a slight Mm -hmm. you know and uh you know i talked to him about it at that time and what he told me is he said, look. It depends on what's important to you. You know, uh, if the plaques on the wall and the stats in the magazines are what motivates you, you're going to miss out on a lot. Because you said, you know, I would trade the two number ones and all of the hits I had in my earlier career for the one song that I wrote, Garden Party, that connected with people, was about my own life story. And I really feel that that song made a difference. So my Advice to you would be if you're going to do this and clearly it looks like you guys are going to do it be songwriters first because that's that's it for everybody the songs are these wonderful little time machines that people can connect to you know certain times in their life they're instantly transported back to their first kiss or their first breakup or that great summer that they spent right after they graduated high school before they went to college or on to work. The songs do that for us. and I've got three daughters and I, I bemoan the fact that mm-hmm. these poor kids really, they're not as attached to music as we were. And, and I think that's an incredible disservice. I really do. Because, man, I remember a time and I, and I loved that time when your favorite band was coming to town and you'd save up your money to go see that band and you were so excited to see that show, or when they came out with a, a new album, you couldn't wait to go down to the record store when there was such a thing, put your allowance money down for that record. You ran it home, you put it on for the first time, you open it up, and you read all of the liner notes, and, you, and all of the lyrics, hopefully, I mean, I always hated it when they didn't include lyrics, and and, and all this, any, any pictures that you put in there, and you just didn't have access that you have nowadays and i think that's like it's the, that it's the absence of, of that information right in front of your face that makes things even better you know you fill in the blanks yourself you're part of the creative experience you know you get to imagine all yes. of that stuff. and for me man I, what a blessing with things like scrap metal i mean for example I, I i was blessed enough to get the first boston record six months before it was released my, uh, my godfather's a guy named John Boylan, who produced with Tom Schultz that first record. So, man, I got the acetate of that record six months before anybody heard it. And I heard it for the first time. And I just, as a guitar player in the future, I just thought, man, this is like the second coming. I love this. It's amazing. And it really resonated with me. That was one of the records that resonated with me. And in scrap metal nowadays, I get to play with Barry Goudreau. Yeah. You know? wow. and, and like, you know, uh, Nelson... Uh, Nelson played a, a show with Boston five years ago. And, you know, it's kind of neat how it all comes full circle.
0: When you mentioned Tom Schultz, I, you know what <laughs> came up in my head was I had the basement, the Rockman, which uh-huh. you could plug in. And I wish yeah. I had it. And I, because I, I must have thrown it away somewhere. And now it's like, it to me, it's this. It's iconic it's like treasure. I wish I had it. So like this relic. I know. I know. So I know. Everyone had the
1: Rockman. By the how way,
0: how great ever. was that? How great yeah. was that? You plug your guitar base.
1: You know, and sometimes like not having things convenient is actually okay. Like you yeah. mentioned, listening to vinyl again. Um, I do the same thing. I I went out and I found. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, my dad had this little den, and he had uh, one of those old Marantz
0: oh, um, wow.
1: receivers, right with yeah. the blue light right yeah and I, and I remember that growing up i remember that Morantz and that beautiful blue light on the on the dial and and uh and his uh, his his old jbl speakers and i went out and i found a system that had been restored that was exactly the same thing really And they, they make much better stereos now but it well, doesn't sound the same and i've like got you. a turntable and i've got my vinyl the stuff that i really love listening to and it's the inconvenience of having to open up your turntable, get it out of the sle- get the record out of the sleeve, put it on there, position the needle, get it right, do the whole thing. It forces the inconvenience, forces you to stop. Totally. What you're doing. Yeah. And stop this constant uh, rushing around and doing and doing and doing. Or like if you're TikTokking, you know, zip 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 zip, and, and having that brainwashing you it forces you to kind of go back to another time where you took time for music because music was important to you. And, yeah. and people are, fortunately they're rediscovering that. And they're, you know, in this fast paced world that we're living in, they, they're they realizing that, Hey, you know what? Sure. Um, if I wanted to make music, I could uh, press a button and do a bunch of samples and cut and paste and put them together and, and, and release it and call myself a, a musician or, I could take years and years and years, and instead of taking samples of other people's guitar playing, I could learn how to play guitar. And I can do that. And because of this lockdown we just had, you know, it's interesting that Fender Guitar and Gibson just had their best years in their history, because while people were locked down, they started learning how to play guitar. So we've got a whole new class of people that are coming in that love guitar music and i'm i'm a-okay with that
0: i am too i mean you talk about sitting down looking at the records and just you know building the relationship with the music that way because yeah. you'd stare like here you stay in a garden party listening to the lyrics the walrus john and Yoko, it's just these and this magical and you're staring at the rock star you, it just breathes. It's like a wine. Let it yeah, breathe. And, and you kind of like get
1: Absolutely. transported back into that recording studio and you wonder what totally. it was like that, that day and, and all that. And, you know, you mentioned this. It's a really important word. My grandma Harriet always taught us when we were growing up, we'd never been in the entertainment business as a family. We've been incredibly blessed. Don't get me wrong. But she said, you know, here's the secret. The secret to the Nelson family Kung Fu is that um, we've never been in the entertainment business. We've never been in the music business or the acting business we've been in the connection business. That's what we do. Yeah, We connect with people and we connect people to the most important life-defining moments in their lives. Yeah, And if you keep that in mind, you're gonna have an easy time of it. Always keep that in mind. And what you're talking about, the ritual of listening to music and making that the point, not the background noise, but the point, you're connected. And so rarely do we get connected these days. The irony being, let's say, social media. They say, oh, social media is supposed to connect everybody. It connects the world. Actually, it doesn't. That was what the sales pitch was. Not at all. It actually disconnects people from the world. They stay home. They make up avatars. They use filters. They edit things creatively. They use autotune. They do whatever it is. And the whole thing is to, to show you, hey, think, life is great. I'm doing wonderful. Look how well I'm doing, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's you know, there's nothing <laughs> connective about that at all. That's pageantry is what that is. And uh, it's also not a dialogue, bro. That's a monologue. And so many people, even the, the concept of texting, well, that's not a dialogue. No. That's a monologue. Those are two monologues going yes. on. Right? Uh, I, I had an incident happen. About a year ago, I I was always doing a daily good news blog, you know, Guns Good News, and it was a daily thing. And especially with this whole whatever this has been for the last three years came along. And we're finding out more and more stuff about it every single day. And more of it is, you know, more angering because they closed down the world for three years and a lot Mm of really hardworking people lost their livelihoods and their businesses and stuff during it. and, And it's really messed up. So, I mean, I have my own opinion on it. I don't want to talk about it. But at the time, I was always following the data about what was going on. Everybody was terrified. You know, we didn't know what this was. We didn't know what, what could help, what couldn't help and all that. And the, the narrative that was playing wasn't resonating with me. They knew too much information too soon about aspects of covid to make me comfortable so i did my own deep dive i went into it and i went on all the official sites i went to the cdc and the who and and jack all was one
0: deep into it i, I talked yeah. to jack about it yeah, yeah i just
1: I, I went really deep into it because i'm a stats facts and figures guy okay mm-hmm. you know I, I went to harvard prep people don't know that so you know I, I really actually i go to peer-reviewed studies and i i was really going deep on all this stuff despite what everybody was saying in the news i was reading the numbers. And going, hey, none of this is making any sense. And then I was seeing what actually really worked to help people, right? And so I was on an interview like this with somebody at the time in Spain and Spain had just been locked down. I mean, 100% had to stay at home and people were terrified. They thought that they were gonna walk outside and spontaneously combust, you know? And this poor guy that I was interviewing with said, hey, you know, all of all the people here in Spain, they're really scared and you do a good news post. Do you have any hope that you can back up that I can share with people. And I said, as a matter of fact, I can. And I cited a couple of studies and, and I said, you know, this anti-parasitic is proven to be working. This other one is working. Vitamin D is important. All the stuff that I knew was really working. And, and I shared that with him in, in the full hopes of making people feel hopeful. Yeah. My job is to do that. I was born to do that. You know, that's what I was put on the planet to do, to heal. And uh, the next day, like, you know, like one of these uh, aggregators, these social media aggregators cut up that part of my interview and said, you know, try, tried to cancel me and say Gunnar Nelson is instilling false hope in people and he's murdering people and whatever they were saying. I was like, I'm sitting here going, I'm doing no such thing. I'm just the messenger. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And it got, to, it got to be a really big deal. And then much to my chagrin, someone I thought was my friend at the time, and mm-hmm. I still believe is. Uh, D Snyder, who I mentioned before, cast member of Scrap Metal, you know, big internet presence goes out and he was D about the whole thing and he just spewed off this whole thing. It's like, you know, freaking Gunner and he's irresponsible and he's this and he's that and he did this whole thing. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. That hurt my feelings. Of course. I mean, this this is my buddy, you know, and he did it like really publicly. And, And it was, you know, with the intention, you know, of... Of you know, in this cancel culture of trying to shut me up, and uh, and and I called D. I, I didn't I didn't get into a Twitter war. I I just called him, and he didn't answer. But I left, I left a message. He called me back, much to his credit, and we had a conversation, and we just talked about it. You know, guy to guy. I said, you know, hey D. He you know he goes, oh yeah, I know I probably went overboard. I said, no, it's, that's not really why I'm calling. I just Here's where I'm at. I was 13 years old and I was parked in front of the family television and this creepy looking guy with pointy teeth and glasses and and a giant ponytail pulled back, sits down at the congressional hearings for the PMRC to talk about the importance of freedom of speech. And you completely shocked America by how articulate you were, how well researched you were. And everybody was expecting the politicians and the lawyers to do a good job. They totally laid an egg. You saved the day. You were unbelievable. You were a champion for free speech. And what what makes a true artist tick is being authentic. And you did that. And so I just want to get it clear because it's 35 years later. Are you saying that my constitutionally protected right to free speech is only applicable when my opinion agrees with yours. And there was this pause and he went, oh, what did I do? I said, it's not for me. I'm just asking you the question. It's a rhetorical question, but if I piece this together as one of those kids that watched you back in the day, I'm sure some of your fans have too, and are kind of sitting there scratching their head. And he said, okay, well, tell me about what you've learned what were you talking about? Cause I was just going on here. And so we had an hour long conversation Yeah. and we were sitting there searching things online and I was showing him different links and all that kind of stuff. And we got done with it. And he said, okay, now I totally get where you were coming from. I have to apologize to you straight up. I apologize. And I learned a lot. You know, we get all caught up in what's going on online. It's so easy to send a tweet and get a lot of people, you know, reacting to it because it's that's what it's all about. Um, in that particular world. Mm-hmm. And so the next day he came out and he and he said, Look, I gotta to apologize to my friend. I misspoke. Um, I learned a lot from it. And and the greatest comment I got from one of his fans under under that was like, wait a minute, you mean two grown men actually called each other and worked something <laughs> out? They didn't like fire off a bunch of I don't know what to do with this, you know? And uh, <laughs> and it's really cool because like what we have to remember coming from a guy who is in the business of bringing people together. It's what music does. Music to me is a means to an end. My end is to connect everybody. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't care what you believe about certain things. We are all human beings sharing an experience. We, this is a one big stew of humanity. And, yeah. and we are all in this fight together. And there are a lot of people who I'm sure this is before COVID and pandemic and all that stuff. There've always been people who are in the business of creating, you know, fake issues to keep us all fighting with each other. So we don't realize that they're the ones that are controlling all of the money and telling us what to do and stuff. Their number one nightmare is if we love each other. Because we're unstoppable. Truly, we are unstoppable when we do that. Music is by far the best thing in the world that can do that for people. Uh Go to a concert, man. You see, at concerts, you see people from all walks of life, you know, and they put all that stuff aside to go and see their favorite band.
0: Totally. That's
1: what we all grew up doing, you know.
0: You and I the same age because you know I did my research on you too. I'm born July, you're September '67. We cool. grew up the same. So if we were in school and how we would probably become friends, it's like, hey, you like this album, The Beatles, and yes, and, and, and that's how you'd make your friendship. Just that's how music. you do it, dude.
1: That's how you'd vet a future girlfriend. What do you listen to? You know, and, and it is important. And I can't tell you how many girlfriends I've had back in the day that turned me on to things I wouldn't normally listen to, and I believe I did the same thing. And so in circles of friends, you know, you got, I mean growing up and going to public high school and stuff you'd always have some friend who would show up with a new record from a band you'd never heard of before
0: something great in. it was innocent and great it really yeah. was it, it was you get the the rock shirts with the jerseys with it was like you know I remember even this is crazy, in Brooklyn and I had a Fleetwood Mac the Rumors shirt on it was like oh, cool. one of those t-shirt rock shirts and it was you yeah. know like painted and yeah. uh this guy just came up to me and he goes that's a great shirt and I was was 77 when that record come out, 78 78 yeah. i was maybe 11 and so that's the logo
1: with mick on the front leaning down looking at, at stevie
0: that's right and- that's right yeah that's yeah. right and, and and on the back they had the penguins and yeah. I go, you know, i felt like this guy made me feel great and it was and, the older kid on the block and you a know? total
1: stranger total stranger total stranger that would normally never talk to you and that was the entree that yeah. was like cool shirt do you know the record
0: you exactly. know exactly My-
1: much to my chagrin, I've got uh, i got three daughters, and uh, you know it's always cool for them to show up in a Misfits t-shirt or a Ramon shirt or a CBGB's or something, and uh, and my 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 kids know all that music; they were raised right. Yeah, but their friends have no idea. You know, that's kind of like the acid test that my my girls have told their friends: don't ever wear a Ramon shirt to our house in front of my pop if you can't tell him your favorite three Ramon songs. You know, and then they go back and they listen to the records and think, oh, this stuff is actually really good. It's more than just a T-shirt. Of course it is. Stuff was great.
0: It was. So were you a Ramones fan?
1: Oh, my God. Are you kidding?
0: Can I share something with you? Okay. I've got
1: Ramones. I've got a couple of Ramones stories for you, but go ahead.
0: Because you don't know. I know your story because I go, there's nothing about me. But hold on. Watch this for a second. Okay. Tell you a crazy story. Really quick. Sorry for the feedback. I play bass. Why well, I did, and then I Jack Ponty killed it for me. I'm joking, Jack. Yeah. But I used to play with this guy, Dee Dee Ramone, till oh, he, okay. Til he died for five years.
1: Well, wasn't Dee Dee the bass player?
0: He was the bass, but then he switched to guitar. Now, and was this
1: during his rap phase or not the rap phase? After
0: the rap phase, after Thank the God. rap, okay. And okay. and this was the last. This is when the Ramones got into the Hall of Fame, and I actually played a. Okay. actually So then Dee we were on tour in Japan, and Dee was real eccentric. If he would have met him you would have never known who he this guy he didn't know one four five. and i remember asking him i go um blitzkrieg bob when you wrote it he he goes i was trying to learn saturday you know saturday night by the bay city rollers i couldn't figure it out he couldn't his ear couldn't so i came up with hey ho let's go instead of Uh sat so he'd had no merch and the guy was so punk rock he was in the dressing room and he got had somebody run to the art store and he would draw and he drew this on this Japanese cardboard. Oh, that's cool. What yeah, yeah. Man. And that's me and my my son from my first marriage, and now he's 24. But oh, just, that's fantastic! Isn't isn't that cool? Yeah, that's and, that's
1: that's real art, that's, and uh, that's wicked cool.
0: So that was my Ramon story, and then a uh, real character man, a real car- oh. like. I like the oldies. Like I used to, grew up in New York. I listen listened to cousin Brucey one on one CBS sure, FM. Sure, so yeah, cousin Brucey's
1: awesome. Yeah,
0: great. I had a '65 Mustang. So Dee, Dee at the time, I was living in West Hollywood. He was living on Franklin and Highland over there, and I went to pick him up, and uh, and he didn't know me, and gets in the car, and the Ronettes were on "Be My Baby," Uncle. and this is before the the murder happened with the Phil Spector. He goes, "Oh my, one day he's going to get in trouble." I go, "What do you mean?" And um. He goes, he pulled a gun out on me. And that, I was at the time, I was playing in a band, mm-hmm. Slim Jim Phantom, at the Cat Club, on Thursday nights in Hollywood. We do a Thursday night jam band. And I'd go to Jim, i go, he's making up these crazy stories. And that actual girl, that Phil Spector, she came into that Cat Club. Oh, and, wow. Uh, she, wow. And I remember seeing her and then. Didi was right. He yeah. got in trouble there. there yeah. That's my little long story that probably went nowhere. But well, I my, to my, share my, f-
1: my remote stories are uh, probably slightly less dark, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I actually kind of fled Hollywood because I, I just, I felt it was kind of turning, it, you know, went from edge to desperation and I, I just had to split. So I, I came out here to Nashville 26 years ago.
0: So you and left I mean, let you were, you living in Burbank at the time or where were you living? In I was whole- born
1: in Burbank. I was a studio city kid. Okay. And so I was definitely a Val. I, I, I lived in the Valley my whole life. And, uh, it was like the movie Valley girl. You know, I was always coming over into Hollywood and doing my thing and, and, uh, and stuff and playing the, the, the club shows that we would play. Geffen Records, who I was signed to at the time was, was right there on Sunset. On Sunset, and, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it was a, it was a really, it was a different scene back then. It was a lot of fun. You know, oh. this is when when Motley Crue was brand new, and and uh, you know, Poison basically their success formula was was fricking genius. You know, um, you know, Motley Crue was, you know, always trying to cater to the Tropicana Mud Wrestlers, Playboy Playmates, and Penthouse Pets. You know, those were the ones who were partying at the the Motley totally. Crue house. You know, up there in the in the hills and stuff after their shows. And, this is what uh, made
0: me want to leave the CBGB New York scene, and I yeah. left. And I came to LA, but I got there when this '91, when it was ending, and I yeah, you got there just a,
1: just a little late, especially too because everybody was transitioning by '91 over to grunge, and and yes. you know if you weren't from Seattle and stuff, you weren't getting any kind of airplay. But uh, you know, um, you know, basically, Poison's success model, of their business plan was catering to all the the girls that were left over, you know, and it was really smart because it was during an era of the whole pay to play thing, where a club owner would basically say, okay, yeah, you can play the whiskey, but you're going to have to pre-buy the evening's tickets, and then you're responsible for selling them.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, And so that that happened like, when I was growing up into playing clubs as a 12-year-old. It wasn't like that at all. If you own a nightclub, you were the promoter. You were responsible for putting people in it. You paid the money to promote and do the whole thing. And you know they got really lazy somewhere around 85, 86. It, it changed that whole pay-to-play thing. They turned the bands themselves into the promoters and... You know, that actually really wasn't a very good thing in, in hindsight, because there were a lot of bands during that era where they were led by people who, uh, I mean, you mentioned the Cat Club and all that stuff. They were led by people who were far better club promoters than they were musicians. Mm-hmm. That's just what they did really well. They, they could get people to come to the show, but they spent very little time working on their instrument or their songwriting. You know, and so to me, I saw the quality shift as far as the songs that were coming out of Hollywood uh, from, let's say, 85, 86 on, you know, it went back to, oh, everybody's got like that one song that people kind of like and all that stuff. But up until that, I mean, I'll never forget when I was playing Long's West and, uh, and, and I was the first band to play. Matt and I were like 13 or 14 and uh, this new band was up there and the place was freaking packed because word was out on them. Turned out to be the Knack. Wow. And and they had just released like like two days earlier, My Sharona. And that band was so flipping good. So, so I mean, good. so beyond good. Just so good. Next level. Their drummer was a the drummer played like Terry Bozio. You oh, know, and Preska,
0: and, Niles on the bass. I mean Yeah,
1: and, and Burton playing playing. I mean, listen to the song so My Sharona and listen to the guitar good. parts. And that's when I realized, you know. For us, Matthew and I have always been uh, a heavy folk slash pop band. We've never been a metal band. We never did, we never wanted to be. We wanted to be the heavy metal Hollies. You know, that's what we grew up in. You know, growing up with our dad's music during I that whole that. Uh, you know thing. Uh, you know, I, I grew up with the guys that formed the Eagles. You know, that's what that that whole Hollywood Hills thing is. What is our musical DNA? So you know, when we were coming up and stuff, I realized that there is nothing easy or simple about writing a simple sounding hit pop song. It is very difficult to do. It's not easy and it's not for everybody. No. And I look, I look at my, my playlist and the things that I love and don't get me wrong, man, I, I got to play drums in the Scorpions one night and it's one of my, my favorite memories. You know, I love that and I love metal. And I, you know, my first Starlix tape when I was learning how to play guitar was George Lynch's Starlix tape for Dokken and, and all that. And I love all that stuff. But you play me Jesse's girl, and I'll sit back and I'll yeah. go. You got to be kidding! It's it is a perfect it's a, song.
0: It's a great song. It's, it's an amazing. Song. It, my buddy actually manages Rick, and it's a. You know, it's funny you mentioned Springfield because Rick is like the same great-looking guy. He has great songs, and it, Rick Springfield and Ricky Nelson. Your dad always reminded me a little of each other with the looks. These two good-looking guys, but television know, background, all television that yeah. background, yeah. and it's like they don't get. The credit they should deserve. Now your dad gets the credit after he's gone. But how about when you're here on this planet? And you know, you know what I You know what I'm saying? Yeah, about but it? again,
1: it, you know, it really depends because, like, again, it, it comes down to what's important to you. In my dad's case, and also in my grandparents' case, you know what? The awards, I want you to think about this. Hmm. ozzy Nelson still holds the record as the writer, director, editor, producer, and star of the longest running television show, live-action television show in history with Ozzy and Harriet. It was 14 and a half years, over 435 episodes. Wow. Not one single Emmy. That's crazy. Right? Okay, Ricky Nelson. Ricky Nelson sold half a billion singles, made rock and roll acceptable to mainstream white America, Hmm. invented country rock, not one Grammy. Now, why is that? You know, because in their case, when I talked to them about that, yeah, it never was about the recognition for them. It never was about going to the parties and you know, you know, autofillating on, oh, aren't I great? Look at my statue and, and stuff like that. They could care less. You know what they cared about was my dad cared about bumping into somebody in the grocery store when we were in a rush to go catch a a movie, Star Wars, let's say, in 1977. And our dad stopped and talked to some guy for 45 minutes. Of course, we blew the movie and all that just to talk to that guy and explain to me as a seven-year-old. He said, you know, that guy has probably wanted to meet me his entire life and he will never get a chance to talk to me again. And that's the person that puts food on family table. That's the person that gives me a, a job and is the reason why I do what I do. And if you boys are going to do this, you're going to take this to heart. That is what matters. Nothing else matters. And he's absolutely right. We've been in the people business and we take it really seriously. Look, man, a- after you wind up in the Guinness book, after you've-
0: I was just going to say the Guinness you know, book, yes.
1: You know, you, we've already gone number one. We've already sold millions of records. You know, that's not important to me. You know what, I, you, what I really remember- I remember holding Erin Vallely's hand on the front of the stage in Orange County when she was losing her battle to leukemia and the doctors had let her out of the hospital because she wasn't going to make it. And she was a a beautiful fan and really wanted to go to that show. And I sang only time to tell, only time will tell uh, to her, um, excuse me, uh, holding her hand. Now to me, that's what it's, that's, what's important. The other stuff is not important. So it depends on where you come from.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's like, you know, uh, if, if that doesn't mean something to you, you should be day trading. You know, you should. Yeah. You should be racing cars. You should be doing something else. But this profession, this is the worst business in the world to be in. It is not easy. It's like that Hunter S. Thompson quote, and then some. You know, my brother and I have navigated the worst people in the world to be able to do what it is we love to do and to be able to deliver the songs that we feel are important to people. And it requires that kind of commitment to do it. And don't get me wrong. We've been incredibly blessed, but that said selling 10 million records means nothing to me. You know, at that point, Aaron Vallely and the Aaron Vallelys of the world, that means something to me.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, definitely a tough one and a heavy one you know I reached out on the on the show here which it's about making people feel good and it's funny how you feel like your mission is and I'm now we're talking about this um yeah you we're know, reaching out for guests I'm a big Harry Nielsen fan yeah. so I, I saw his son Zach was you know uh you know on Facebook and I'm yeah. like well I, I love this music I want to keep the stories alive so I reached out to him and I ended up making a friendship with him uh-huh. and uh, I have a doctor on the show on another show and when I first started out, right. About the time I met your brother, long story short, Zach calls me up one day and he goes, do you mind if I come on your show? I'm in stage, I have stage four cancer. And why is it okay that we, uh, you know, we could put our dog to sleep, but we have to be here and suffer. And if we want, if it's my decision, you know, to be put out, it's like, can I just, I'll talk about anything about Harry, about cancer, just have an open place where I could just be myself. And at first I felt like, Oh boy, this is, you know, but then I, I go, if you want to do this, let's do this. And I ended up getting like a video of Alice Cooper sending a song to him because of the Hollywood vampires. His dad used to hang out with Alice and John Lennon and all that. And he goes, Stefan, you just made my day having that. I always wanted to meet Alice and Harry always talked fond about, fondly about him. And then afterwards, I was like, wow, you, you actually did something good, Stefan. you made this guy feel good. And he passed away, unfortunately, but he was a sweet guy. He'd come and banter. And whenever I do the show and yeah, go, there's your purpose right there.
1: With right, this. right. It's like, you know, with what's been going on lately, I've had a couple of run-ins with doctors because before this whole thing happened, I mm-hmm. really, really admired doctors and I took their word as gospel, you know, without second guessing it. And then, you know, I realized that You know, it's kind of like it being in the music business. Are you in the music business because you love all the stuff that doesn't matter and the plaques on the wall and the, the, you know, the adulation and all that kind of stuff? Or are you doing it because you really feel like you can connect with people and make a difference and do it, do some teaching and some healing? And, um, it's like doctors, man, are you, are you in it genuinely because you love healing and helping people or are you in it for the big house and the BMW? It depends, you know. I mean, and and we're all human and we come from different backgrounds, but I always tell people that come to me and say, Hey, you know, I've got a son who wants to get into music or a daughter who's a great songwriter. And what are your words of advice? I will be the first guy to say, Listen, I I am an analog man in a digital world. I am the last guy in the world to ask about you know, what kind of game show you need to go on or, you know, how to get your Twitter snap and your face chat and all that stuff going and stuff. I'm the wrong guy. But what I will say is you need to really identify your reason why the why in what you do has got to be so strong that when you're having those moments and you will have those moments, when you do get rejected by every label in New York and LA twice and you're sitting on a porch in New Jersey being be raided by somebody who's a friend of yours. <laughs> that reason why has got to be what wells up inside you and goes. There's a reason why I'm doing this. The, where it makes none of this other stuff and everything mm-hmm. else I have, all the fire I have to walk through doesn't matter because I was born to do this, and this is my reason why. If you can identify that first, no matter what it is you do for a living, you will be successful. Amen, And and that's the only advice that I have ever given, which is really identify your reason why. Like, you know, why are you a doctor? Why are you a husband? You know, why are you uh, somebody that, you know, coaches Little League Baseball? Why are you doing it and stuff and identify that first? And and we've actually always subscribed to that and worked backwards from that. Um, I think that's why. You know, Matthew and I being guilty until proven innocent or always feeling like we've been swimming against the current or pushing a boulder uphill. Bring it. Okay. You think you're the first person to to cancel me? Are you kidding me? You know, the press told the world that our dad died freebasing on a plane. It was a bunch of bullshit, you know, and, and so my family has lived through. The you know the, what do they call it you know fake news and all that kind of stuff but, truly and, we, and that'll get
0: you crazy the pain from the fake news it's just uh, terrible yeah,
1: I, I mean because the, there are people involved in this you know mm-hmm. I mean there there are people and you know now there there've just been unfortunately so many people you know losing everything or dying or whatever and and, and all that stuff but but we're, we're man we've experienced this for decades we this family has gotten unfortunately very comfortable kind of navigating through those you know our dad right. was our best friend and and uh, you know his birthday is coming up obviously on the 8th and and we miss him every single year you know i'm it's crazy to me he died at 45 i'm 54
0: 45 years old Forty- it was a kid, a you
1: kid. Know? i was
0: just gonna say a kid
1: i don't th- we, i don't think
0: old. i don't think we grow up till we're 40
1: yeah well <laughs> now you know remember back then like in the 50s no joke, man, when you were 18 years old, you were like married and you had a career. And, you know, when you graduated high school, I mean, there were kids that were like married in high school, you know? Um, and, and that's just the way it was back then. And, but when you were 18 and you were expected to be fully (laughs) grooving on your life in your own home with a wife and doing the thing and things have changed quite a bit, you know, um, since then, but, you know, the one thing that really hasn't changed, um, especially in my family, each generation of my family has done something that's specific and applicable to their generation. Obviously, you know, I mean, Grandpa Ozzy and Harriet, they started out in a big band. Pop did his rockabilly and later country rock thing. Matthew and I started off with uh, pretty much arena pop rock. And now we're doing something that's more like Skinner. Cool. Everybody that's has lovely. done something that is like, you know, something that they're passionate about and that they, they, they love to do well. Because of something my grandpa Ozzy said, he said, doing what you love to do for a living and getting paid for it is like having a license to steal. And I never forgot that. And it's really true. So I'm not saying that um, I haven't worked hard. You know, as Harriet always said, some days you work, some days you play, you know, and and we all go and we do shows and stuff like that. And some some gigs are wonderful. Some gigs are awesome, you know. (laughs) <laughs> they're just so easy and they treat you great and it's wonderful i have learned that you can't do any favors for promoters man if you take a low dough date it's without fail the, le- the less they pay you the worse they treat you the,
0: you know it, it, it's their music business
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is it's, it's so funny but boy is that true um, it is true but but you know that's the one thing that's that's difficult is uh, nowadays going out and touring in general you know we've done the big bus tours and and mm-hmm. done that before Uh, You know, now we're doing uh, flight dates where we'll go in for, you know, fly out Thursday, do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, come back home. And uh, it's still not easy, you know, going out and touring. And, you know, all the, the what people don't see, they don't see the logistics, they don't see the missed flights, they don't see... Uh, oh, you know, we just gave away the rental car that we had reserved for you. And, you know, uh, we're, we're out. and You know, all that stuff that and happens.
0: And when we're older, it's harder. You know, you're on there for an hour and a half, two hours on stage. But the other hour is getting there and just yeah, getting your head I, together.
1: I, you know, it's, here's what helped me out as a touring musician. What I realized when I made the distinction that what they really pay me for is the travel. Totally. They pay me for the getting there. They pay me for the missed flights, the bad food the doing shows while you're sick because all of us musicians know that we would glad, don't tell anybody, but we gladly pay to play. We gladly do it because that two hours on stage, we live for that. It's cool. the only industry in the world where we will spend all the money. We will never have uh, buying equipment to, you know, pay for a you know, $10,000 car to spend $300 on gas to drive three States away to play a $50 gig. That's mm-hmm. us. That's us. We're, we're complete morons financially. <laughs> totally. But our reason for doing it is not about that other stuff because we feel like we have a calling. And it's, I feel such a blessing. I really honestly do because, you know, when we all do eventually go hopefully in God's good time, we're not going to remember all the dead presidents in our wallet. We're just no. not. It, none no. of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter when you've got enough you know when, when you know you're comfortable enough, if you're lucky enough to do that, and a little discomfort's pretty good too. It gets you off your ass, gets you out there working. But uh, you know what? If you are doing your own thing and you really believe in it, win or lose, you you've always won. That's right. You know you're you're winning the game, and 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 it took me a long time to realize that. You know, uh, after, when grunge happened, uh, it was a tough time for Nelson. Obviously, it was really difficult it, it happened on our own label i mean they signed nirvana on dgc which is the label at geffen we were on i remember so, that yeah. yeah so we we go on tour and we're the top band on planet earth and we come back and we're like the brunt of jokes and we didn't know what happened in the time we all we knew is we were working really hard we did 300 shows and came back and everything had changed
0: it was like that
1: yeah like really it was engineered it truly was it was that was a business move that was like the death of disco yeah. and if you think it jack ponny actually explained this to me it's really smart if you think about it when disco died like donna summer back then it had gotten bloated donna was like asking for a million bucks a record in those days dollars okay that'd be like 10 million bucks a record right and so the industry had gotten so expensive and so bloated and it was the same thing with the confidence rock era that we were in you know we were all making five hundred thousand dollar freaking videos things got really expensive so what i personally believe is that the powers that be there's like six people that run the music business, like like the oligarchs that actually really run it. And they all know each other, and they're all friends. And they called each other up, just like they did with disco, and they said, hey, Donna's getting too expensive. But I heard there's a movement in England, it's called Punk, and if you just keep them high and give them a McDonald's, they'll do anything you want, for no money. The records cost nothing. And they also realized that with Grunge, man, you could go up to Seattle, and just like they did with Nirvana, they licensed, nevermind, for $20,000. Done. They got the license for a finished record.
0: 20000
1: $20. So, I mean, if you think about that, mathematically, dude, it's a business to those guys. That totally makes sense. So that is why one day you woke up and all the slaughters, wingers, poisons, warrants, Bon Jovis that you saw on MTV were done in favor of people who were grunge and from Seattle and doing that whole movement. That wasn't an organic thing. That was a violent paradigm shift Yeah, that, that was orchestrated. I'm not bitter about it. You know, there was a lot of stuff that definitely did need to change. Um, you know, the only thing that I think could have been done differently in Nelson's case is that,
0: you know, we were all
1: kind of messed up by the, by the press. We'd gotten dogpiled on pretty, pretty good at that particular time. One of the dumb things I can count on one hand, things I really do regret It was right around that time that I got a visit. We were about to make our second record. Of course, nobody at the label told me the truth about, hey, you know, we've completely changed what we're selling and we're done with you guys. You know, um, they just basically kept us in the studio forever until our fan base died out. But um, Peter Collins, a great producer. um, I mean, fantastic. He he, uh, did uh, Operation Mindcrime with Queensryche and stuff, but he also did the Indigo Girls. And he came to, he saw us at the Universal Amphitheater, and he came to me uh, right around that time and said, here's what I envision. You guys have been going out doing these big giant rock shows with the lights and lasers and the, you know, 20,000 screaming girls and all that stuff. I think your next step is the core of what you guys are, which is the two brothers, two acoustic guitars. You know think the indigo boys that's why i want to do that record on you guys and i thought he was crazy and i i mean soundly turned him down said that we're not going to do this and uh and I regret it because he was actually really right. We should have done that record. That actually would not yeah. have been a bad idea for us. I regret that, you know, um, I missed out on that window. But with the new trip that we're working on, I, I'm thinking that that first phase of Nelson, believe it or not, I mean, just like my dad with, with Stone Canyon Band, we still have a lot to say. Um, I just came from that mastering studio, too. We mastered the six songs for the the Firstborn Sons demo. We're probably going to release it commercially. I'm going to call it just the tip.
0: That's cool. That's cool. You you know, Mark was talking, we were talking about you, uh, you you and Matthew and how you guys sing together like birds. It's incredible how you and your brother just, it's oh. just so, you guys don't need a, a lot behind you, the big band, just the guitars and your vocals. You guys got good melodies and amazing vocals. Brother, thank
1: you so much. Well,
0: and, and I'm, I'm as a musician, I'm telling you, you know, as watching your, your songwriting, taking away all the bells and whistles, you really got a lot of great stuff i'd like to hear your music even stripped down like because oh thanks you know thanks. i think it's well, great we're going to do a lot
1: more that i i can honestly say that every break that matthew and i have ever gotten in our musical career was centered around two guys and two acoustic guitars like we we, we actually busted into john coladner's office back in the day with our acoustics on a day he was not in a good mood which you never do with john and we said we just wrote this brand new song we have been on a hold by you for the last year um Great. We have a development deal. We want a proper record deal. This is going to do it. You're going to shut up and sit down and listen. And we played him Love and Affection, which we had just written that morning. Wow. And he looked up after it was done and looked at us. And he leaned over, he picks up the phone, lifts it up. And he said, the Nelson deal is a go and hung, it, hung up the phone. And he said, I've been waiting to see that from you guys. For a year and a half, for a year and a half, I've been difficult on you. I've kept you in a holding pattern, coming to me with your demos over and over and over again. But you've got to realize that the critics are going to rip you guys to shreds when you first come out. You're going to have to be tough. You're going to have to not listen to your managers like you did when you rolled in here today and have that kind of conviction about what you do. And you know what? This, what I just saw, the two guys and the two acoustics and that song, you got to base everything you ever do from that, and we have ever since.
0: Wow, John Colonna, For everybody watching out, that he was a real character. He looked—he wore a white suit. He had the beard. He looked like Lennon. He had the whole Lennon vibe from the John and Yoko look. And uh, he worked with every major act from
1: there. Well, if you if you look, at, you look at the dude's lo- the dude looks like a lady video. The guy that in it, right? the wedding dress with the beard—that's John Colandro.
0: That's John Colonna. That's, that's, John that's
1: and right. The guy's a genius. I mean, he—he he, you know—he signed ACDC. Okay, he he put Aerosmith back together. You know, uh, he was responsible for Whitesnake. You know, uh, the guys, he, he knew what was happening. Foreigner. He signed Foreigner, you know. G- That's good Good right.
0: dude. Done um, with but- mirrors. That's right. Done with mirrors, right? He, he was yep. responsible for the Aerosmith. And yep. before that, Joe Perry was doing the Joe Perry project. That's and- right. Yeah. Yeah. He
1: got them all into rehab and talking to each other again and making records again. Yeah.
0: I remember seeing Joe Perry. There was a club in Brooklyn called Lemores in Brooklyn, and Joe Perry Project played there. Ah, cool. New, and I'll, I'll never forget that and it's like you know yeah these are these are great great and these are the stories i love to talk about and you know bring the kalanas and the stories and behind the scenes and who who are these people because it was a magical time
1: i'm sure i'm sure there's still i mean I, i'm sure today has its share of coladas you oh, know yeah. um you know they're all around it's not it's not really you know not really my world uh at this it, particular it, point but no. um you know, I probably handle myself differently uh, now than I, I did back then. Um, and, you know, of the of the two twins, you can ask Jack and he'll tell you, you know, I mean, for example, I, I actually uh, Jack prepared something for his daughter Neva's wedding that he was supposed to say. Mm-hmm. And he was too choked up to do it. And he said, I'd like to invite my friend Gunner up here because he's the least emotional guy I know. And he can get through it. So that was a compliment from Jack, by the way.
0: He's sweet. He's a sweet guy, but I, yeah, I no, know no. that story. He,
1: he, yeah. yeah. So, so, but, you know, in, in a sense, especially when it comes to this business, he's kind of right. Because, um, you know, the twins, the, the two twins, Matthew's kind of like the family Kissinger. Matthew is the guy that makes nice with everybody. Uh, he's pretty politically adept, which is great. I just want to fucking work. Yeah. I just want to do the job and I want to do it great. And I want to write a great song. And if it's not recorded perfectly, I want to go back and I want to make it right. And that's what my focus is. And it really worked for me and Matt with Nelson back in the day, because Matt loved going to all the metal edge parties and doing all that kind of stuff and being seen with his girlfriend at the time. I couldn't stand it. I just wanted to be in a studio, you know, or on a stage or doing that. You know, that's what I wanted to do, but it really works for me and Matt. That stuff really does work. Um, there's nothing I love more than, you know, hearing something in my head, and and being like a sculptor chipping away at the stone to totally. get what I only, I mean, I hear it done, and so so to me, my challenge is, can I eventually make it as good or better than what I heard in my head finished when I started, and I, I've kind of gotten to that point, which is cool. But my patience for that, the politics that are the patients that's required to actually stay inside the door when you get a cracked open is not my forte. I'm not very good at it. I probably yeah. would be a lot further along if I spent a little more time doing that because you know, there's that whole thing. It's uh, like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it fall, does it really fall? You know? Um but I it's a good thing.
0: You, you guys balance each other out. You know, you the yin and yang. I don't, I wish I had a twin brother like this. Cause then I, I wish I had a, a you know, a map because I'm like, I'm like a lot like you, yeah. but you took the bull by the horn with working on your, your record after the rain. Is this true that you, the producer, what's the whole story that you went in? And-
1: yeah. What, 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 it was a weird time because, you know, back in that day, the way it all happened based on technology, there was definitely a demo phase and then a record phase. Like, The technology that we all had to work around, uh, you know, we could get an idea down, but it sounded like crap. It was recorded on a little cassette tape or a micro cassette or whatever, but that was state of the art. And, you know, um, we had our our friend, John Boylan, like I mentioned, is my my godfather who produced the first Boston record. He had a little home studio, but it was rudimentary. There was really nothing to it. It was a really basic console. And he had one of those Fostex reel to reel eight tracks, you know. And, uh, I mean, that thing was back from the 70s and stuff. So, you know, it sounded okay, but it didn't sound record quality. You know, it was very definitely a demo thing. And um, so we we got our deal with Geffen. Uh, the way we we actually worked our way up for that, what people listened to eventually as the After the Rain album. Man, that was three years of writing songs and like every month going back into Kaladner's office and playing him three new demos of three new songs. Uh, he would shit can two of the three, if not all three, every time. And then, you know, he wouldn't give us a whole lot of criticism on what to change. He just said, well, you're the music, you, you're the musician, you fix it. So we would go back and finally, you know, especially with the ones that we really believed in, we just cycled the same songs back in with the same thing. And eventually we got him to approve all the songs we wanted to, yeah. you know, it just took a lot of meetings. But um, when we went from the demo phase to the record phase for the after the rain album, um, we had to really fight for the production team that we had. And that was David Thoner, who was an engineer that Kalodner approved of. He'd worked on some of the Aerosmith stuff. He'd done some legendary records that we loved. He did uh, Missing You for John Waite and uh, you know a couple of other classic tracks. But it was that engineer being in the proper studio with us when we are spending the big money that made John Kalodner feel good. We fought for Mark Tanner, our co-writer, to be the producer, because we felt he deserved a break. He worked with me and Matthew for three years for no money and believed in us. And we were like the three musketeers, you know? So when it came time for us to make that record, we had a false start with these big name guys and got nothing from it. And we got dropped for a couple of days from the label. And I went back into Kaladner and I said, you know, you love the demos that we made with Mark Tanner. Why don't you let us go in the studio with what you, what made you love us in the first place? Just put an engineer in the seat that you like. You know, so you're, you know, you've got your, your checks and balances in there. And they agreed to that. So we went into the studio and we re-recorded basically note for note, everything we'd spent so much time doing in the demo phase. Right. I mean, nowadays with computer technology, everything's a master in progress now. Back then it, it wasn't that way. So uh, anyways, we got into the studio and it's really true. You know, there was uh, to make a long story short, Mark had already worked so hard on all of those demos being as record quality as they could possibly be, um, he was pretty much done. You know, he, he, he was, he was pretty burnt about the whole thing. And, uh, and so when we got into Cherokee and we're recording for real, basically Matthew was behind the, the, the glass producing my vocals when I was singing, I was producing Matthew's vocals and, and, mark tanner was out on dates with chicks all the time he'd, he'd float into the studio every now every now and again with some new girl he was trying to impress Hey, look at the big console and all that stuff and then he'd split leaving me and matt to do it and uh and dave had a tragedy at that particular time not to be too specific he had some family issues happen that were pretty tragic and so after the original basic tracking in cherokee of the after the rain record dave disappeared too to take care of his family and it really left me and Matthew alone. And at the time I was 18 going on 19 and, uh, you know, I was pretty much a kid and I was in this big giant studio and, and, you know, we'd already had one false start. I knew if we, if, if we, if we shit the bed this time we were going to get dropped and nothing was ever going to happen. So we pretended to Collodner and the label that everything was great. And when we would catch rumor, I, I made friends with John's secretary and she would call me to let me know, hey, John's going to surprise you with a studio visit. I would call Mark and I would call Dave and say, hey, Kaladner's coming in. You guys got to be here. And they, they'd they show up and, you know, we'd all pretend we were working together and everything was great. And then he'd split and then would leave, you know. But all that meant was there were some opportunities where like or there's sometimes where um, they, we had a deadline. We were out of money. We had to finish a couple of particular mixes and uh, and we had to get done with after the rain, after the rain, the song needed to get turned in the next day. And I found myself alone in the studio with the second engineer. And as a 19 year old kid, I got to mix after the rain. So wow. what you what you hear on the radio, that's my mix, which really is it was the beginning of my production career. And what I, what I really love about making records, I never got any credit for it. And I spent, Oh my gosh, the first 10 years of of my career with, you know, Mark Tanner taking credit for all the production of the After the Rain record, but that's not the case. That didn't happen that way. He produced the demos and then he took off. And so Matthew and I really produced the After the Rain record. That was really for us. And we were young and we were kids and, you know, much like our, our grandpa Ozzy felt when our dad started recording songs. Unlike Elvis, Elvis took credit as a writer for all kinds of songs he didn't write uh, because, you know, it was very smart. Business-wise, it was very smart because he got a percentage of the publishing and all stuff, and it helped build his dynasty. You know, Ozzy, as a fellow musician, thought, you know, well, the songwriters deserve their money, so let's just give them the credit, and Rick can make his money on the road and being a star and doing that, you know. know, But Matt and I really fell victim to that, too, and it's really kind of a tragedy because – you know, the record company took the easy road. They marketed us in all the teen magazines. We never did an interview for the teen magazines. They basically took our legitimate interviews and cut and pasted them into their little teen magazines. And then all the photographers, man, they were making a fortune selling our pictures to all these outlets. So, you know, the next thing, you know, Geffen is like, Oh, we don't have to spend any money on this. The teen magazines are going to push this thing. So great free publicity. But if the guys who were really involved engineering and producing that record had told the truth, And said, you know, these guys are the real deal. They had a vision. They knew exactly what they wanted. They did this. It would have made our lives so much easier. You know, Um, but that's just, that wasn't our karma. And that's okay because, again, I knew who did the work, you know. And and I always tell people, look, if you ever doubted who really made that record, listen to Lightning Strikes Twice, which to me is the Nelson record that was really the logical succession of the successor to the After the Rain record. I, I will i will say three records this is until you know nelson greatest hits comes out in a couple of months if you want to know nelson in a snapshot by after the rain lightning strikes twice and peace out those three records are all you need and it will show you this continuous through line and with those later productions um you know those those first two guys had nothing to do with it they weren't Mm -hmm. around and it will show you where the nelson sound really came from and it was really me and matthew working together growing up with these you know great arena rock bands with the great background vocals and all that stuff. I love 12 string Matthew coming up with that riff for love and affection, man, you heard that on the radio. No one had a number one since tambourine man on an electric 12 string since, you know, up until that point. I love it. And it was different. You know, no one was doing that. Now that didn't mean in my own playlist, man, I didn't love, uh, you know, living on a prayer and nobody's fool. And and, you know, all those. I mean, I love that stuff. Yeah. You know, um, it's just not who we were. And, you know, throughout all these years, it's cool. Even, you know, some of those guys, um, I mean, we took a lot of heat, let's say for my friend Kip, when we were coming out, Kip gave us a lot of heat back in the day. You know, he didn't really understand it because, you know, he looked at himself as far more of a rocker and we were pop guys. That's okay. That's fine. And now we work together in scrap metal and, you know, he gets that, um, you know, people come from different musical sensibilities. There's room for everybody. Of course. You know, there, there really is. And everybody comes from a different background. Um, and, and it all can work together. You know, I, I love the progressive, mathematical, highly complex, very technical uh, Red Beach playing on 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 the winger yeah. stuff. And it, it's like we have an expression here in, uh, in Nashville. It, it can actually be too smart for Bubba. You, you got you got to be careful because like Keith Urban, when he came out with his first thing, what a blazing guitar player and player he was, he had, he had an outfit called The Ranch and it was so good that mainstream small town America didn't get it at all, you know? And I don't think people can really appreciate Winger's genius unless you're really a musician and you hear what goes into it. And, and now Kip is actually orchestrating like proper symphonies and doing that. You know, I always say that Nelson, the two of us were really lucky. We had the best band on planet Earth. All of our players were far overqualified to play the pop music that Matthew and I wrote. Yeah. And God bless them for it. You know, Bobby Rock is a savant on drums. Oh, and I Brett I, I, totally. Brett Garson is like an alien from another world. No one plays like Brett. That guy's the most amazing guitar player in the Alan Holdsworth sort of level of proficiency paul merkovich an absolute genius he is the guy that hollywood turns to now on any of the big tv shows he's the musical director for the voice and all that he's the guy this is this was my band
0: it's funny that you mentioned because i remember sitting with eric singer outside by the Burbank airport the starbucks and he goes that guy and eric was telling you know who that is right and i'm like no and he was telling me the whole story what you just said and yeah. those are the cats you'd see at the baked potato you yeah. know those, those type of players too yeah
1: yeah is- i mean like real players and real players. you know it's kind of cool because i sit there and i'm in awe of that kind of proficiency i think it's wonderful yeah and uh you know i know like with with like i i'm never there's some singers in what it is that we do that could literally sing the phone book and sound amazing eric martin has like the best voice i've ever heard
0: yeah
1: you know i mean it's hard to listen to i want to quit you know, I, I heard him sing for the first time and I went, I, I'm done. The guy's amazing, you know, just incredible to listen to. And I never had that kind of proficiency vocally. And that wound up being a good thing because I realized that the kind of songs I would have to write would have to be songs that were so melodic that it would be like, don't look in this hand, look in this hand over here. You know, the songs had to be so catchy and so good that they, they would, you know, gloss over the fact or overlook the fact that I didn't sing like Aaron, Eric Martin, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, sometimes you, you take what you've got and your strengths and all that stuff and your weaknesses and you turn it into something that, that really works for you uniquely. And, you know, fortunately for me, I always had an unfair advantage. I had a twin brother. You know, we split from the same cell. As you mentioned, I actually can go on a big arena stage, which we're about to do. We're going to do Monsters on the Mountain in about a month. And we're playing right before our friends in Night Ranger, and right after slaughter and it's going to be me and matt and two acoustic guitars in front of 40,000 people and it's going to be awesome
0: that's awesome you know?
1: it's just like we went out touring with sticks and frampton it was me and matt and two acoustic guitars and we had a great time
0: that's cool that what a legendary show that must have been with those guys oh. Huh? Oh, dude it was
1: god. it was fun and and, and and with classic nelson karma we never they wouldn't even put us on the ticket stubs
0: oh my god what the heck? Isn't that awesome. <laughs> gonna, you know what? I, I'll, t- I could go on and on. You got to promise me you'll come back. I mean, I oh, do. Love to. Yeah, you man. got, you got to. I mean, I got your information, but I won't bother you. You know, but it's a lot of fun talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you forever. There's well, let's, more let's, let's I want to talk to.
1: I have got nothing but stories. Matthew and I are actually going to start doing our own show, and it's called "What Happens on the Road." Oh, dot so dot dot.
0: Cool. It's but so cool. We all,
1: we all have some stories,
0: you know. You, I want to ask you. Before I let you go, because I'll talk to you forever, and then you'll never want to come back. I don't want to. I want to impress <laughs> you. But what the people want to know is, and I'll do. I do a top five must-have vinyl album list. So, what would you be your top five must-have vinyl records in your collection, or something that Ooh. made you who you are? Well, Led
1: Zeppelin IV would definitely be in there. Um, I mean, if you only give me five, I'm going to have to do the Eagles' Greatest Hits. But I'd probably have to do Volume One and Volume Two, so that's three records. Um, Fleetwood Mac Rumors and Rubber Soul
0: Rubber Soul there you go top five great album if you
1: gave me six okay I'm gonna have to to, I'm gonna have to cite a Ricky Nelson record but it's not Garden Party it's the record immediately before Garden Party it was called Rudy the Fifth and it is one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life because it was made from total confidence. Our dad produced it. He wrote everything. And it was at a time when the record company was completely done with him. Meaning there was no one from the label looking over his shoulder. They couldn't care. You know, he had a contract at the, at the time. They were going to pay him every year no matter what. So it was just kind of a vanity thing. And they left him alone. And the Rudy the Fifth record by Rick Nelson and the Stone Canyon Band. It's funny. Like a lot of like, the seminal country rockers. Will cite that record as the cornerstone of their wanting to do music.
0: Mm, wow, I gotta check this one out now. That yep. record. You'll, you'll like
1: Rudy the Fifth. It's very good.
0: And he produced. So, so, see, it's very similar to your dad taking the bull by the horn, which you did at 18, 19 years old. It's like this kid, because I remember being 18, 19. I wasn't thinking like a man. You turned into an adult right there in the studio. It's like do or die. Brother, we this. didn't
1: have an option. What people don't understand is we literally. It was sink or swim. We were starving. We, we, we had no option, you know, to, 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 in being successful. It was either pull out all the stops. This was not going to be a career that we could grow into. There was going to be enough attention on it. I mean, if you look, you'll never see a photo like in the trades. Everybody was doing those, the photos with their A&R guy and the record company gathering around signing the contract. You'll never find one of those pictures with us and John Coladner. The reason being... If it failed, of course, they say, you know, success has many parents and failure is an orphan. He didn't want to be branded with that because yeah. it was going to be a high-profile signing if word got out. So, uh, you know, you're never going to find those moments and stuff. And which, whichever way it happened, now, John and I did not get along. You know, we're both incredibly opinionated. He, is, mm-hmm. uh, he was always opinionated about the John Kladner business. I was very opinionated about the Nelson business. You know, and sometimes it was oil and water, but we made great fucking music together. You know, sometimes that tension and wanting to prove a naysayer wrong is such a blessing. You know, so all of your detractors out there that you're those teachers that started out when you were kids saying you're never going to amount to anything or those exes of yours that called you a loser or whatever. You put that in your bag of power and you go, okay, well. Uh, you know you're welcome to your opinion I don't agree with you and I'm about to shove that opinion where the sun doesn't shine you just watch and I've got a lot of that to me and I've always had a lot of that to me you know I I want the music to do the talking and man shoot you I I know it's very specific and stuff but I'm really proud of this greatest hits record I listened to that body of work that spans 35 years and I just kind of went well one it's kind of surreal even talking about a Greatest Hits record, which is a very pretentious title, um, but it is applicable in this case. You know, there's some big hits on that. And more importantly, every single song is like one of my children. And I, I, I remember everything about it. I remember what inspired the writing of it, where we were when we worked it up in a room someplace, um, what studio we did the demo in, what was going on in the world at the time, who we just broke up with. Um, the call from a a bookkeeper that you're out of money, all that stuff that happened around those times. And I listened to that whole thing and I go, you know, despite all of that, the music is so freaking good, man. It made made me smile and feel good. And, and I'm really proud of the work. And when it all comes down to it, when I'm gone, um, just like, you know, when my dad's you know, him being gone and all that stuff too, I can put on Rudy the fifth and I can hear him at the end of that record telling me it's going to be all right. And I learned that there's a, a song on the album called palace guard. And then I find out last year as a 40 or a 54 year old guy that this, the Swedish words, uh, I wrote what palace guard, the translation of, uh, palace guard in Sweden is, is the name gunner. So there, I'm finding little messages Wow! and the music lives on, you know, even when we're all over and done and hopefully a hundred years from now, Someone's going to find your record collection or a piece of your record collection, and they're going to put that on a turntable, and they're going to be transported back 120 years. Totally. And it's going to be an instant thing. And to me, that is as close to magic as we have on this planet. It's not, I'm not trying to be trite. I firmly believe that. And anybody else that doesn't believe that should not be doing what it is we do.
0: That's, you know what? Beautiful. Well said. I want to ask you: Do you have your dad's record collection? Any of the records that I do, you do,
1: I do. Yeah, I've got cool. his, I've got his record collection. Yeah, his record collection was pretty eclectic. It was like fifty percent all of the promotional records that the labels would give him. You know, all, all those those uh, what they, those uh, cutbacks they call them. They're the the ones that all the artists get charged for, and they're free goods. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah.
0: Oh, Gunnar, yeah, Gunnar, uh, would you do me a favor if I, if I bug you? Um, I do the vinyl show weekend, and I have my buddy, Joe Travis, who's the vaultmeister for Frank Zappa, great drummer, played with Duran cool. Duran. Would you come on the show, and we could show some of the records? Would you be able to do anything like that? Oh, see, man. That it? I'd man.
1: That sounds great. I'd be honored. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh,
0: that would be awesome.
1: Better awesome. yet, why don't I send you one of the rare Nelson collector-grade vinyl, 180-gram, oh, remastered God. after the Rain records? I would love it. All right, I'll send that
0: to you. I would love it. And you know what? What I'll do for you? Would you play, if I bring you on my vinyl game show, make you go against somebody? Now, the guy could be a little annoying. My buddy Eric Singer, he has a record collection. And your records go against his records. The audience votes, and you'll win something from me. Okay. It'll be a lot of fun. Or I could put you next to Mark Slaughter. But Eric is a character.
1: Well, hey, look, I'll tell you what. As long as we're competing in vinyl selections and all that stuff and not in drumming I, I love to drum but i don't have feet like eric singer
0: uh, no 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 it'll be he, he's going crazy he got a new vinyl collection every day he's texting me different v- things that i should buy and all that uh, stuff but yeah let's let's do that and uh
1: well and- why don't you tell him to get rudy the fifth by rick nelson and the stone canyon band i think he's gonna love it
0: Oh, I'm gonna get it now. Okay, I, I got all the mint mint stuff here. But everybody watching, uh, people, I got over here. My buddy Mitch Weisman, he put some. He played Paul McCartney in Beatlemania. Oh, cool. Mitch cool. was a great right guy. On. Yes, the vinyl shell. Uh, we have Xandra from Vegas loves this, and then we have <laughs> Debbie over here. Have a great day. Much love. Be safe. She's like, thank you, Stefan, over here. We she's watching us from work you know so thank you guys for all watching but man thank you for being on here today
1: well well thank you and, and to all the viewers out there and stuff sincerely thank you for giving my family the greatest job in the world for the last
0: 100 years no oh, yeah, excellent i'll put all links down below you're on cameo right you're doing cameo. Oh, yeah. you, you're doing i'm cameo? on cameo
1: i love cameo Cameo's cool i'm actually tonight i'm doing a, something called cameo calls where i get to go one-on-one with fans and just kind of visit and all that kind of stuff so that's going to be starting at seven o'clock central time tonight Tonight. And uh and then also, you know, if you want to to hire me to to do a little cameo or sing a song for you or something like that or deliver some bad news for somebody you're too wussed out to do, I, I can do all that stuff for you too.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's great, Gunner man. Thanks for being here. And um I'll edit this. I'll make it look good for everybody watching. Thank you for being on the show with us. Check out Gunner. We'll put all links down below. Check out Nelson. Any updates? Any shows? It'll be take you right to their website and support the music get the music and uh, outstanding i that. love support support i can't it's <laughs> i can't you know what i say names wrong actually when i when i wrote to melissa i'm like oh because my wife does my writing she goes don't write you you because i'll write in capital and then i wrote <laughs> and with your name there's the a instead of the e and she goes what did you do i'm like oh he'll never leave off the r at the end you pronounce it
1: right it's good that's
0: it that's it so you know my wife's always correcting me and all that but man it was really cool Having Same you here. on, I'm gonna call well, come on Johnson. anytime.
1: I love your show. Ah,
0: oh, I appreciate it. Wait till you see the edits that I do with this. I'll bring it down, I'll shrink it, and I'll, before I air it, I'll make sure you like it. So,
1: oh, no, I'm, I'm, I, I trust you, but I'd love to see it.
0: Okay, you got it. And let's keep All in right, touch. And, and I'm gonna hold you to it the game show and the show your dad's records. Well, and okay? we
1: give Eric my best too, would you?
0: I will. Thanks for being here and tell your brother, right. I said hello. All right, take care. Bye, All right, everybody. That was the wonderful Gunner Nelson. Hi. Huh? What a great guy. What a cool cat, everybody. And I got to thank you all for being here. And, uh, we'll do some intro, Stefan, like the master of editing. Look, Debbie, we love you. Thank you guys for being here. Eric brings the applesauce. It's going to be good. Um, wonderful show. We'll bring him back. You guys are wonderful. And, uh, while we're all here, I just want you to guys to know, I appreciate you. Thank you for your support. I have more cards and postcards. I'm going to be sending some people. And, uh, you know what? Uh, friday night my buddy alex mitchell will be live on artist on record at 7 p.m from circus of power He has some new music coming out and then saturday joe travis and i are doing the vinyl game show 8 p.m saturday live so that'll be on youtube uh join us um coffee talk i'm doing mondays with dr g i'm trying to still figure an algorithm for that and i'm working on editing some of my trips with uh paris jim morrison vlogs which gonna love what i'm doing well i hope you do and uh you guys here debbie zandra mitch thank you guys really for being here and supporting the channel i love you and um we'll see everybody later but um until then i'll let you all go let me try to do a little a little um intro over here let's see over here thank you star thank you for joining thank you uh zandra get a hold of eric eric needs to give us. A friends and family discount for the second. Oh, that's right. They ju- did they just announce it? Okay, I gotta check that out. Mitch Weissman, just great, thank you, buddy. Thank you, you know. And um, I love you guys. Okay, now watch this. Let me see. I'm gonna try to do a little editing here. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see over here. Let's see if I could get this without the internet messing us up. All righty. Three let's fix my wig, get my life together, make sure I look good over here, right? Huh? Oh, the necklace! Got to fix the necklace. at is worse, right there. Okay, let's get this ready. Three, two, one. Tonight on Artist on Record, Gunnar Nelson of the Nelsons, stories of Ricky Nelson, Nelson, and much, much more. All you need to do is subscribe, hit that bell to be reminded, so you don't miss any other episodes. Check out our playlist after the show. Also, put your comments down below. Love to see your feedback. But hey, right now, don't touch that dial. It's all starting now. Okay, we're going to do one more. Already, Let's see over here. one two check one two one two one two three two one you're an artist on record i'm stephan adika and tonight we're going back to the 90s after the rain the band the nelsons we have going nelson on the show tonight you're not going to miss this we're gonna talk about ricky nelson nelson working in the studio making this record happening good i don't like that let me three scrap 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 take two take two. I keep it short. Um, what are the other people on YouTube? They go, um, let's see. Ready? Oh, that's what I need. welcome everybody tonight you're on artist on record your ultimate intimate conversation with your favorite artist in the hot seat from nelson we have Gunnar nelson we're going to talk about his father ricky nelson the making of after the rain and much more do yourself a favor subscribe hit that bell to be reminded so you don't miss any other episodes now all you need to do is one thing don't touch that dial <music> Welcome back, everybody. I'm Stephan Adika, and tonight in the hot seat, give a big round of applause for Mr. Gunnar Nelson. I think that was pretty good, I might say. Okay. All righty. That was good. All righty. And then let's do this right here. Okay. It's easy to do with you guys watching me. Okay. That was Gunnar Nelson. And you know what? I want to thank, wait, no. Three, two, one. That was Gunna Nelson. And if you like the show, give us your feedback in the comments down below. Love to see what you're saying. Love to see what you're doing. Also, make sure you subscribe, hit that bell to be reminded, and to catch up with any shows that Nelson are where, if they're, okay, see, I do this on top of my head. I fucked. Debbie Mulden make, makes me nervous. Okay. Three, two, one. That was Gunna Nelson. And I wanna thank everybody for being here tonight. Make sure you leave your comments down below. Also subscribe hit the bell to be reminded when we come on and make sure you check out our playlist a lot of great interviews a lot of great stuff and also follow gunner down below his links will be there go on the Nelson website check a cameo out if you're looking to break up with somebody looking to get married or looking to quit your job gunner will help you out until then everybody who loves you baby we do and remember it's only rock and roll and we like it until then I'll see you all later. That was good. Okay, I'll do one more. Uh, Three, two, one. That was Gunner Nelson. And please, if you like tonight's show, give us a thumbs up and leave your comments in the chat down below. Also, make sure you subscribe. Hit the bell to be reminded so you don't miss any other episodes. And if you want a cameo from Gunner, links will be down below. If you're looking to break up or marry somebody or maybe quit your job, Gunner is going to help you out. And make sure you follow Nelson's website. Make sure you can see all their websites. I didn't like that. My dog is fucking me up. Everybody, see it's worse than Debbie Muller. Debbie makes me nervous. The dog's feet are tapping. Can't, can I can't handle it. Okay, all right. What's this? That's right. Hold on. Don't get in there. It's only us. Gunner will help us get Meg. Gunner's gonna help everybody out. All right. Watch this one. Ready. Three, two, one. I want to thank Gunnar Nelson for spending some time with us this evening. And I want to thank you as well. Make sure you put down your comments down below. Also, subscribe, hit the bell to be reminded, and share this show with somebody who loves rock and roll as much as we do. And uh I forgot what I was gonna say. Fuck, oh, it was sounding good. Three, two, one. I want to thank Gunnar Nelson for hanging with us tonight and especially you for watching. Make sure you check us out down below at all- debbie stop staring at me okay wait hold on hold on three two one that was gunna nelson and i want to thank him for hanging out with us tonight and especially i want to thank you all for watching make sure you give us some feedback in the comments down below and subscribe hit the bell to be reminded so you don't miss any other episodes and remember the first saturday of each month our vinyl game show where you can win prizes and much much more but you got to be in it to win it all links will be in our description along with nelson's website a cameo link to meet gunner if you're looking to you know it's too long too long three two one i want to thank Gunnar nelson for hanging with us tonight and also i'd love to see your feedback in the comments down below and make sure you subscribe hit that bell to be reminded when we come on so you don't miss any other episodes until then everybody it's only rock and roll and we like it remember who loves you baby we do now get out of here you crazy kids guys are still here we'll click on the box that pops up over no you guys are still here we'll click on the box that pops up right here all righty now get out of here crazy kids damn mm-hmm.